We will be in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, keeping somewhat of a similar theme to the prior week's messages where we looked at Mary's song. My intention was to get to Simeon's song and praise here, but I didn't get that far. So we'll be looking at verses 21 through 24 this week. And then next week, we'll, I'll try to get into the next section there. So I'll start with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the truths that are contained therein. Help me to make those clear and explain them in a way that glorifies you. Bless this time as we dig into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So from where we left off looking at Mary's song in the beginning of Luke, you've had the birth of John the Baptist, and you've had Jesus born, and you've had the, the shepherds have come and visited Jesus. And Josh covered some of that in December when he was preaching. But it brings us up to Mary and Joseph now bringing Jesus to the temple, starting in verse 21. I'm going to read 21 through 24, and then then we'll dig in. It says, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So we'll look at these laws that they were fulfilling here and look at why it was important that Christ fulfilled those. So to start with, Christ was born under, under the law. He was born at a time when the law was still in full effect. And you'll see, just in these short verses, you see where Christ submitted to that law. And it ultimately is for him to fulfill the law. So, in verse 21, it says he's circumcised on the eighth day. And he's named Jesus. We remember from the earlier accounts that the angel said his name will be Jesus. The angel is the one who provided that name. And they followed that. And you see a similar account if you just turn back a page or two here. Luke chapter 1, verse 59, you have the same thing happens with John the Baptist, where it says, On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, And they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah, but his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. So on the eighth day is when circumcision was done, and it was also the same time when the name was assigned to the child. And it was customary for the name to be the father's name. That was normal for the firstborn son. But in both of these instances, it had been said what revealed to them what the name of this child would be, and 
John the Baptist was given the name John, and Jesus is given the name Jesus. But the rules regarding circumcision on the eighth day, we're going to be in Leviticus 12 some today. So turn there, Leviticus 12. This is where it's given. The specific law regarding circumcision is verse 3. But it says, on the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. Pretty straightforward. But we talked last week about some of the covenants that God gave to, to Abraham. And it was Genesis chapter 17. God gives the covenant of circumcision type to Abraham. I wrote Moses in my notes. That's not right. <laughs> but this, uh, it was interesting thinking about this. So when God gave that covenant to, to Abraham, it was over 400 years before he gave the law to Moses. It was, so the covenant of circumcision for the descendants of Abraham had been in effect for over 400 years before he even gave the law to Moses, to the people of Israel. So they had been practicing that long before then. So it's necessary that Christ was circumcised in order to submit and fulfill the law. And it's also necessary to fulfill the covenant, covenant of circumcision that was given to Abraham. So you see here, this is telling us Christ was circumcised on the eighth day, and that points us back to the law. He is, this is in keeping of the law. And was thinking like, well, how much power does an eight-day-year-old child have in keeping the law? Of what decision do they have in their own circumcision? Can they say, you must circumcise me, right? It's eight, eight days old. We know Christ was, was fully, fully human as he came and fully God at the same time. But in the humanness of being an eight-day-year-old eight child, he didn't have that ability to to say I must be circumcised, right? So this is reliant on his parents to do that. And one of the things I wanted to to note as we look at this is in appointing Mary, Joseph and Mary to be the parents of Christ, God appointed parents who were devout followers of the law who were going to make sure that their son was going to fulfill the commandments given them that Christ would keep that law. So Christ was born into a a family that was dedicated to the Lord, dedicated to keeping his law as given. And that is noted here. This is important that he was circumcised on the eighth day. And then it goes on in verse 22. And says, when the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Mary and Joseph, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So there's there's a time back to Leviticus twelve, if you keep one one finger there, this is now spelled out of what's going on here. But verses one one through eight specifically of well it's all of chapter 12 of Leviticus. 
But it says, The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, A woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. Then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. If she gives birth to a daughter for two weeks, the woman will be unclean, as during her period. Then she must wait 66 days to be purified from her bleeding. It says, when the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. He shall offer them before the Lord to make atonement for her. And then she will be ceremonially clean from her flow of blood. These are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl. If she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. So there's the, the law, spelling out what they, are, what they are doing. This is what they were following. So... When it says the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, that is 40 days after the birth of Christ, as, as spelled out in the law. It's interesting to think. So they were in Bethlehem, and they had to go to Jerusalem. It's about 40 days after birth. I'm pretty sure my wife's had two children, and I think if I said, hey, we need to take an eight-mile hike on probably not the best roads, 40 days after you give them birth, she would probably not be exactly ecstatic with us, right? But this is the law. This is what you're supposed to do. And this was in effect for all Israel. So anybody in Israel had to go perform these things, um, which is really something to think upon, right? Everybody, all the ladies and their babies, Firstborn had to go. And this was, that was even just purification. That's not just the firstborn. That's after the birth of any child. But it says down in verse 23, continuing on, it says, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Which is, that's a whole... If we turn to Exodus chapter 13, it talks to us about that, what that consecration is. Exodus 13 verses 1 and 2 say, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. So to consecrate is to, to set apart, is they are dedicated to, they belong to God. And this isn't just the male children, this is the male of man or animal. This covers both. And if you look further down in that passage, verses 3 through 10 talk about a, um, 
observing a festival of unleavened, unleavened bread. But verse 11 and down says, After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised on oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem a lamb... Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. And he said, well, what's, what is this? Why do they have to redeem their firstborn? Why do, they, why do they have to break the necks of these animals if they don't redeem them, right? Why do they, why do they have to like, buy back their sons? Well, it says in verse 14 and on, it says, in, the, in days to come when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrificed to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. It will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. So in this this consecration, this redeeming of the firstborn, it points back to the Passover, to their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Of when if you're thinking about that, so the, there were ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt before the Israelites were finally let go. And that last and final plague is the firstborn son, and all the land dies. Man and animal. And the, and the, but God provides a way for the Israelites to not experience that by spreading blood over their doorways. And that's a big thing. It's huge. It's major. And it becomes a big point of remembrance for the Israelites throughout time. They celebrate Passover every year in remembrance of it. But for every firstborn son, every firstborn male, man or animal... They have to do something that points them back to that, that reminds them of that. And that's what's happening here with Mary and Joseph and Jesus when they consecrate him to the Lord. It is pointing back towards God saving them from slavery in Israel, bringing them out. So it goes on to say, okay, so I understand that's what we're pointing at. We're looking, this is pointing towards the Passover, towards God's redemption of Israel from Egypt. But how do they redeem them? How do they consecrate them? Because if I, if I remember correctly, they're only, the only consecrated, the only ones that are, belong to God that are put into his service are the tribe of Levi. So what about all the other Israelites that are not of the tribe of Eli? How do they get set apart to God? Because they don't enter into the priestly service. For that, we look at Numbers. Numbers chapter 3 specifically. And verses 11 and 13, 
sort of gives us an introduction. It says, The Lord also said to Moses, I have taken the Levites from among the Israelites in place of the firstborn, first male offspring of every Israelite woman. The Levites are mine, for all the firstborn are mine. When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set apart for myself every firstborn in Israel. Whether man or animal, they are to be mine. I am the Lord. So God is saying here, I killed all the firstborn males in Egypt. So any of the Israelites that were saved because of the decree that I made belong to me. I have redeemed them. They, they were saved because of me, and they belong to me. And yet he says, in verse 12, he says, I have taken the Levites from among the Israelites in place of the firstborn male offspring. So the, the Levites, firstborn Levites, were to enter service. They, they didn't get redeemed. But those who are not of the tribe of Levi were to be redeemed. So then it's, it explains later how they are redeemed in Numbers chapter 18. So what is that? How do they redeem those who are not of the tribe of Levi? So Numbers 18, looking at verses 15 and 17, it says, The first offspring of every womb, both man and animal, that is offered to the Lord is yours. But you must redeem every firstborn son and every firstborn male of unclean animals. When they are a month old, you must redeem them at the redemption price set at five shekels of silver, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. So the way they redeem those who are not of the tribe of Levi is they pay a price. You would pay a five shekel in silver price to redeem your firstborn son. So that's what Mary and Joseph do here. Where it says, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Right? They're not of the tribe of Levi, so Jesus does not enter into the priesthood, yet instead they pay this five shekel redemption price. And this is in keeping the law. And then it goes on, verse 24 of Luke, chapter 2. And it says, And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Goes back to Leviticus chapter 12. I should have kept my finger there. I told you to do it. But that whole section gave those instructions in chapter 12 of Leviticus of what that would be. So they were to give this offering. Starting in verse 6 of Leviticus 12 where it says, When the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over, she has to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a, a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. He shall offer them before the Lord to make atonement for her and then she'll be ceremonially clean from her flow of blood. So this is part of that purification process but it's spelled out in God's law what they are to do what this sacrifice is to be but you'll notice 
where it says in verses in verse six there that they are supposed to bring a year old lamb and a young pigeon or a dove, right? But if we look in Luke two, it says it says to bring a pair of doves or two young pigeons. You know, it's sort of. But if you look further down in Leviticus, it says there's an exception, right? If you can't afford a lamb, you're to bring two doves or two young pigeons. So Luke is telling us that Joseph and Mary couldn't afford that lamb. They could afford two doves or two young pigeons. So they were, they were not wealthy. But they also weren't destitute, because if you, if you look further in God's law, you'll find, so if you can't even afford to bring a pair of birds, you can bring some flour. I mean, it's not a small amount of flour, but you can bring flour, right? It's, it's more economically feasible. So they weren't totally destitute, but they also were not wealthy. So they fall somewhere in that middle. And just looking at that law where it says a pair of doves or two young pigeons. I was like, well, why do, why do you have either doves or pigeons? Like, what's the, what's the significance there? And the significance is that turtle doves are a migratory bird. So there would be certain times of the year when you couldn't get turtle doves because they would have flown into North Africa. And so there weren't any around. But pigeons are not a migratory bird. They're always around. Pigeons are always around. So they could always get pigeons. So that's why it's turtle doves or pigeons. It's based on what's available. So what's the point? <laughs> right? Like, oh, that's all really interesting, Greg. Thanks for pointing out the law. Like, oh, really exciting stuff, you know? Why? Why? Why is this in the scripture? Why is verses 21 through 24 there? Why is it, why are you spelling out the details of the keeping of the law, right? There's several things that you can glean from this. One of the things that I already mentioned was, this shows the dedication of the parents of Jesus, of Joseph and Mary. He had parents who were dedicated to making sure the law was fulfilled. And this is not by an accident. And looking a little further in Luke chapter 2, verse 41, the next page over, it tells us, it says, every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. You know, that's when he's 12 years old and he's in the temple. But it's showing us the dedication of these parents. God, God chose parents for the Messiah who were going to make sure that the law was followed. And we see that here. But why is it important that the law is followed, right? If Christ is truly sinless, what does he need to follow the law for, right? He has no sin. What's he need to be circumcised for? Why does he need to be redeemed? Why does he need to be set apart, right? He has no sin to be atoned for. Why does he need to do all these things? Every Jew was supposed to do these things. This is standard operating procedure. It's, but Jesus is different, right? He didn't have to do these things because he is sinless. And yet, because he is to take the punishment for sin for everybody, 
He has to do these things. He has to fulfill the law perfectly. And that is why this is here. This is saying Christ fulfilled the law. When the Jewish people were looking through and saying, well, how do we know this Jesus guy is really the Messiah, right? And like, well, look at, he, from eight days old, the law was fulfilled with him. He, there's no, you can't point to an exception and say, ah, he wasn't circumcised or they didn't do the consecration like they were supposed to. Like, no, it's spelled out, they did it. He was not conceived and born in sin. He did not need to fulfill the law because of his own sin, but he's born under the law. And in order to fulfill the law on our behalf, he needed to keep the law perfectly. So from there, Matthew 5 is a good example of Christ pointing out some of the requirements. You know, the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5, looking at verse 17 of Matthew 5, he says there, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Christ came to fulfill the law. If the things that are detailed in Luke 2 regarding what happened to Christ when he was just a little bitty baby. If he didn't do those things, he did not fulfill the law. Verse 20 of chapter 5 of Matthew, he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So at this time, when he's giving this message, the standard in Israel is the Pharisees. It is the teachers of the law. Your translation might say the scribes. But that's the standard. Those are the people that they're going around telling everybody, you have to do these things in order to be right with God. This is the standard. But he says, unless your righteousness surpasses them, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The standard is perfection. Continuing in chapter 5, verse 48. In this passage, this section is about loving your enemies. But at the the end of that talking, he says in verse 48, he says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what is the standard for keeping the law? It is perfection. It is not like, well, you know, I, I, I goofed up a little bit here. Like, well, then that is sin, and you have no longer kept the law. In order for Christ to fulfill the law, he had to be perfect. And just that little, that little bit in Luke is just pointing to just the beginning. Just saying, he kept the law. Did it right. Did it. It was kept before when he was 40 days old, when he was 8 days old, when when as a human baby he didn't have the ability to do that on his own. Yet the parents that God appointed for him, they did it. So he gives the standard here in the Sermon on the Mount where the standard is perfection. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
And he kept that standard. He was perfect. He fulfilled the law completely. And it was important that he did that because Jesus was the final sin offering. He was the lamb. You had the lamb that Mary and Joseph presented as a sin offering. Well, those, lamb, those sacrifices continued year after year. They didn't stop. They, that lamb was not sufficient on its own to completely cover the blood. It was a temporary covering. And yet Christ's blood was sufficient. It completely covered. You had John the Baptist, whenever they, he sort of first comes to, runs into Jesus in, the, in John chapter 1, where he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist was pointing towards Christ, calling him the Lamb of God, pointing to what he was going to do, that he would take away the sin of the world. And Romans Romans. 8 verse 3 tells us that he was, let me just turn there. Romans 8 3 says, For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. So Christ, it says God sent his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sinful, to be a sin offering. But in order to be that sin offering, he had to be without blemish. He had to fulfill the law perfectly. another interaction in Matthew chapter 3 that points us towards this. It's Matthew 3 verses 13 and 15. This is Jesus came up to John the Baptist to be baptized. It says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. So what was John's baptism that he was performing? What was it for? Was it the same as the baptisms that we, we do here now when we baptize somebody? His was a baptism of repentance. It was, he was preparing the way for Christ. He was calling the people to repent. The Messiah has come. And so when Christ comes to John and says, I need to be baptized, or he says, ask to be baptized, right? And this is to be a baptism of repentance, right? Does Christ himself have sin to be repented of? No. He does not need this baptism to repent of his own sins. This is a repentance, a baptism of repentance and identifying with the people of Israel, of him taking on their sins. Um, 
But he says it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. It was necessary for Christ to be baptized in that baptism of repentance in order for him to do this, what he was about to do. So Christ's obligation was to fulfill the requirements of the law because of his identification of those he came to save. Right? He was... He was taking on the sins of those. So he had to do everything perfectly. He had to follow that law exactly. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. So when the time came, Jesus was born under law, right? He was, came at a time when the law was in effect, and that was the rules God had put in place. But he was meant to redeem those under the law, and he did that by fulfilling the law, and then being that perfect sacrificial lamb. So Christ came in order to be the perfect sacrifice, to be that lamb that would cover all sins for all time. The lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so in order to fulfill that objective, he had to be perfect. He had to be a lamb without blemish. He had to be righteous. And the standard for that righteousness was the law as given, which he had to keep in every, every aspect. And that process of Jesus keeping the law began when he was eight days old. He started keeping it then with his circumcision and then at 40 days with the purification rites and the consecration. So this, this little passage in Luke chapter 2 that you, you read and you sort of pass over and say, yeah, he was circumcised, and yeah, they did the consecrations. Okay, yeah, he was a, he was a Jewish firstborn son. He, you know. Well, it points to the greater thing. It points to Christ was the Savior. He had to do these things. He had to fulfill the law completely, and he did, in order to take sins of the world. So it's just the beginning of the proof of how Jesus fulfilled the law, was the perfect sacrifice, was able to intercede on our behalf and to take away the sins of the world. And so my objective was to get into the Song of Simeon, and I didn't even get that far because I got into those first couple verses and said, oh, there's just so much here. Like what how beautiful it is. We have these little details that at first you read through them and they seem kind of innocuous and yet they, they point us to the perfection of Christ. They point us to his fulfilling what was required to become that ultimate sacrifice, to take sin. Lord, I I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truths contained therein. Uh, I thank you how we can 
jump into the Old Testament and, and make sense of what you've put, gave us in the New Testament. And I thank you for Christ, for coming for sins, for fulfilling the law perfectly, <clears throat> for making a way for, for sin to be covered. In Jesus' name, amen. For Christ, it was the fulfilling of the law and being that perfect sacrifice. And then as we come to him, it's us giving ourselves to him, consecrating ourselves to him. And today we're going to sing the song, Draw Me Near. So we'll stand and sing that. And that's part of what it sings about, our consecrating ourselves to him. 458, if you're looking in your hymnals. I am thine, O Lord, I have heard thy voice, and it told thy love to me. But I long to rise in the arms of faith, and be closer drawn to thee. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. Consecrate me now to thy service, Lord, by the power of grace divine. Let my soul look up with a steadfast hope, and my will be lost in thine. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. Oh, the pure delight of a single hour that before thy throne I spend. When I kneel in prayer and with thee, my God, I commune as friend with friend. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. There are depths of love that I cannot know till I cross the narrow steep. There are heights of joy that I may not reach till I rest in peace with Thee. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where Thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to Thy precious bleeding side. Since we know Him, that's largely what we want to do. Draw closer and allow him to take us and use us in the way that he desires to use us as his children, as his friend. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we're so grateful for your love. 
We're grateful for your fulfilling Old Testament law that you might be the perfect sacrifice for us, a lamb without blemish, that you could pay the price for our sin, and that you could give us as a result cleanliness because of the shed blood and your robe of righteousness to wear. Lord, we desire to walk like you, but to do that we must draw closer and know your word. Teach us through your spirit. And then, Lord, help us to say yes to you as we serve you. We desire to be your children, not just in name only, but in our words and deeds. We praise you for your love for us in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed. Hello. Hello. Hello.